0: The Guardian. Welcome again to The Guardian Sydney Siege podcast. I'm Michael Safi.
1: And I'm Bridie Jabal.
0: And Bridie, you spent, despite the fact being that you are a little bit ill, you spent all day bravely soldiering through the Sydney siege uh, inquest. Tell me, what was the big story out of the day?
1: So the big story came out in the last half an hour after we'd heard hours of forensic and interesting, but forensic and technical evidence. It is that ASIO agents were sitting on all three of Manharan Monass' court hearings in the year leading up to the Sydney siege.
0: Now that's that's very interesting because there's obviously loads of conspiracy theories flying around and there's a lot of people for whom this is going to confirm those theories. But did we get any sense of why, you know, we had spooks sitting in on these these hearings?
1: I'm afraid that's all we got. So the, the police involved in the investigations didn't even know that the ASIO agents were there. They were there when he was charged with being an accessory to murder and got bail. So they watched him walk out of court twice and get bail twice. They were there when he was charged with those original sex offences in April, watched him get bail in May, and they were there again in October when the DPP decided not to apply for his bail to be revoked and he was charged with the 37 further sex offences. And no, no police officers have been told why he was there. It was almost even an accident how the police found out he was there um an ASIO officer was going on maternity leave and she emailed one of the wow. detectives in the homicide squad and said oh have you organized a meeting with the dpp about this and then sort of set as an aside oh yeah we were at all we were at all the hearings
0: on some level now i guess that's you know that can be explained by the fact you know he's been charged with or he's been uh, at that point he's only been charged right with um, sending, using the Postal Service to send offensive letters to the families and widows of, of dead soldiers, right? So maybe, you know, this guy has popped up on their radar, they're just following up on him. I mean, is, that, is there anything more sinister than that, do you think? Or
1: I don't know if more sinister is the phrase that I would use, but the Homicide Police and the police from the Sex Crime Squad did approach the DPP after they identified Monas in footage from protesters at Lakemba and he was apparently leading these protests and agitating at these protests and they approached the DPP using it as one of the reasons for why he shouldn't be granted bail, although it didn't, didn't factor in because he didn't actually do anything illegal then. But perhaps ASIO knew that he was at these protests and, but you know, perhaps he was being monitored more closely than we realised since the Commonwealth letter offences. It
0: seemed to me, just from reading your live blog, that um, Council Assistant Jeremy Gormley seemed to go in pretty hard on this question of, of why the police were noting that Monis um, was at the, at the protests in Lakemba. Was, that, was I right in, in reading it that way?
1: Yeah, well, he, he hones in on very fine points at, at different times and he is a very forensic and detail-orientated man as you would be if you're an SC. But he was honing in, saying, like, why did you think that this was an issue? And they said, you know, he was... And the, the police officer from the sex crime squad said he was agitating, and Gormley said, well, there were police at the scene who didn't arrest him, and he had to concede, yes, they were. Therefore, he wasn't charged with inciting... Violence, And he did really hammer them and get the police to concede that he wasn't doing anything illegal at those protests.
0: And, you know, I, I wonder why, though. I wonder why Gormley was so insistent on trying to make sure that the, the police had to be held to account for what they were saying, that some of what they passed up the chain about that perhaps wasn't completely correct.
1: Well, I think that is exactly what he's ensuring. He's ensure, he's making sure that he knows and the inquest knows every single bit of police communication that went on because he also honed in on another police officer from the Homicide Squad when she said that she had complained about Mona's getting bail and he read the email out and in the email she said the court didn't consider that we had disproved his alibi and he really hammered her on that and said did you did they really not consider it is that an accurate statement and then she said oh perhaps it's not a fair statement he said i'm not asking if it's fair is it accurate so he does Really make them justify every single thing that they've said in the past eighteen months. Can
0: I share with you my conspiracy theory on this? I I think that in this whole dispute over who is to blame for Monis being free between the DPP and the police, I think I think I think lawyers want it to be the police because they don't want to see other lawyers you know put up and basically blamed for this. And so my kind of completely unproven conspiracy theory is that. Uh, Gormley and other lawyers are trying to make sure that the police are accountable for what they've done here. But that could be um, completely off. Well,
1: that blew up this afternoon. But do you really think the barristers would go out protecting solicitors like that? I, I, so
0: I didn't know. Is there a two or four between them? I don't, I don't Maybe there is. Well, this
1: afternoon it all sort of blew up for him in the secondary story. But I would say my weird – I don't have a conspiracy theory. I think the realistic look is that it's both their faults. They both should have tra- um, chased it up more and they both should have known. But it did come out this afternoon. That a police officer, a homicide police officer, handed a DPP solicitor a brief that said Monis was on bail when he committed some of these offences and we do not know what what happened to that brief. All we know is that it was never presented to court. And this afternoon was the first time we've heard evidence that a police officer, or someone at least, knew about it.
0: And so the gravity of that is that, you know, had the DPP read and understood this, this note they were getting from the police, chances are Monis may have actually been behind bars at the time of the siege, right? Well,
1: maybe they did read it and understood it. or it, it not, we, we don't know what's happened to it. But yes, if the DPP had read and understood it, the DPP could have decided to apply for his bail to be revoked. And if a magistrate had seen it in the first place back in December 2013, They may never have granted bail then either. So, but what happened to this piece of paper is what we're hopefully going to be finding out tomorrow, the DPP solicitor, whose name is suppressed, is getting up to give evidence, if not tomorrow, then the next day. And then, and that's when we'll find out what happened to this briefing note and if it was ever read by anyone but the police officer who prepared it.
0: So let's say good day and bad day. Who was it a good day for today?
1: It was a good day and a a bad day for Detective Senior Constable Melanie Staples from the Homicide Squad. So in the morning she was forced to concede that Monisa's bail application was actually very good and it wasn't accurate for her when she complained at the time to say that her work had been dismissed. But in the afternoon it became a very good day. And you could tell she was under pressure as well. You could tell she was getting a little bit cranky. The the set of her mouth, the big long pauses before she responded to questions. Uh, But but this afternoon she was redeemed and it was back to being a very good day. She seems to be the one of the only police officers if not only one of two police officers to do the research and find out that Monas was on bail when he committed these offenses and the barristers really hammered this home they re- they said to her it wasn't hard she said it wasn't hard they said you didn't have to go through a big maze to do with the commonwealth as we have seen argued by previous police officers she said no it was like, very easy it was in the course of my work it was you know, I could find it out almost immediately.
0: And so, I mean, we see, in the fact that it wasn't found out, we, we kind of, there were so many, there were so many opportunities to, to sort of put Monis, or to have Monis' bail revoked. And, you know, if, if, we, if we want to play it out this way, had he been behind bars, the Sydney siege probably wouldn't have happened. I mean, what, what I wonder is, you know, are we wrong to be looking for someone to, to sort of blame here? Is this sort of, if you, look, if you looked at any tragedy under the microscope, would there always be little missed opportunities, small mistakes along the way to prevent it?
1: In my experience, there always is. I've been to a few inquests, even royal commissions as well, but I've been to a few inquests and many court cases in my years as a journalist, and every time it is like watching a car crash in slow motion and seeing that if they had decided to turn left at this intersection instead of right, if they took this way instead of the other way, it wouldn't have happened, if they'd left 30 seconds later. Every single event like this, there are always going to be... It doesn't mean it's anyone's fault. But there are always going to be triggers and moments where things could have gone a little bit differently. Someone could have done something differently. And you are watching it happen in slow motion. You know what the end result is going to be.
0: I guess, I guess, you know, for those of us in the trenches watching this each day, the important thing is to remember, which is something that um, I think has been raised by a few of the lawyers so far, is that ultimately the one person to blame for this was Monas, Because he was the one who walked into the Lynn Cafe with the shotgun and, and, and you know, staged the siege, right?
1: Exactly. And this inquest isn't, as Gormley's pointed out and you've already quoted on this podcast... This inquest isn't a court of blame, it's a court of fact, and what we want to get from this inquest is not who to blame, not to who to pin this to, because you're right, Monis is the person to pin it to, but what lessons can we learn as a whole, and in the court system as a whole, and in the society as a whole, that could maybe prevent something like this happening again?
0: So, you've already kind of previewed the fact that we have a pretty important witness coming up in the next couple of days, and it's this DPP solicitor, the person who ran Moniz's case in October 2014. Can you kind of.
1: No, go this f- is the one in December 2013, so there were a couple of different oh, DPP solicits. There were at least two, but I think maybe three. But the one who was handed the briefing note, I believe that was in December 2013, and that is the one that we're going to hear from. In so, the, next the big question days. is
0: going to be what happened to this briefing note?
1: Yes, that's it. the biggest question to answer this week is now everything else aside, was it terrorism, was it not terrorism, should it be granted bail, should it not have been granted bail? All those questions are pushed to, to the side for the moment and the big burning one that really matters and could make a real difference is what happened to this briefing note.
0: Well, that's all we've got time for.
1: You, you can join us at the end of Thursday's Evidence by subscribing to us on iTunes by searching Sydney Siege or looking for us on theguardian.com.au. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.